Thanks for downloading the RCF podcast. You're about to hear a message from Dr. Joe Ann Lyons in night two of the Gathering 2015 conference. What a great joy to be with you tonight and be with you today. It's been wonderful. Just love it. And thank you for a great worship tonight. I'd heard you had a great worship team. And I tell you, when someone wanted to know if I wanted to be in the green room and come out, I said, no, I want to be right there in worship. I want to be, I want to enjoy, be with this and see what the Spirit of God is really saying to us tonight. So it's really wonderful to be here. And all day today has just been great. And, uh, and to the other Wesleyan churches and all the work that's happening and all the connections. You know, God, I want to say, we sang it, but our God reigns. He still reigns in this world. He has not abandoned this world. In the Wesleyan Church, we work in many parts of the world, and Egypt is one of the countries in which we work, and we have been in Egypt since the 1920s, a long time. And so uh, there we have some 50, 60 churches there, and as you know, Egypt is a very difficult country in which to work. Well, I was there, uh, and, and you saw the news, of course, a couple of years ago in what was referred to as the Arab Spring, where literally the blood rolled in the streets of Cairo, and, uh, hundreds and tens of thousands of people were killed. So when I was there shortly after that, I met with our pastors, and I thought, I don't know exactly what they're going to say. I mean, this is tough. This is tough on Christians. And so one of them said, as we were, they were kind of giving a report of what was going on, one of them said, well, you need to know that the Arab Spring broke our imagination of what God can do. Well, I felt, ooh, that's sort of not what I'm here to hear. And then, but then they went on and said, since the Arab Spring, four million Muslims have come to Christ. And then I knew what they meant. God had broken their imagination. It was too small. And God wanted them to have a bigger imagination of what he could do. And so I began to see as I traveled the country with them and saw all the enormous and marvelous things, God was just breaking through in every place. Well, many of you, uh, a few months ago, when 21 Egyptians were beheaded on the, on the shores of, uh, in Libya, and that very next day, I had a text from one of our young leaders. And he said, and we have some marvelous young leaders there as well. And he said, please pray for us. One of the men that was beheaded was from one of our churches. And we're grieving with the family. But then the very next line that he said was, please pray for us that we will love Muslims even though they don't love us back. And I listened to that and I thought, here are people in the midst of suffering and yet they're living like Jesus said, love your enemy, pray for your enemy, do good to your enemy, feed your enemy. Now, that's impossible to live that way. And I mentioned this this morning. You cannot live that way. It's counterintuitive to live that way. We cannot live that way without the presence of Christ in us, without the Holy Spirit in us. We cannot live that way. But, you know, let's just take this down to where we live every day. Think about the people, people right now that you have a conflict with. 
Do you pray for them? Let me give you just a little example. A hundred years ago, I used to be a teacher in the public schools. And I had a principal, and I'm here to tell you I didn't like him, and he didn't like me. And every day, we were in a battle. And I, he spent, I spent so much time, I'm going to win this argument the next day. And then, I, and then apparently he did too because he, we were, he was trying to beat me. And we were just, we were at each other's throat all the time. And you know what I found? I didn't even care about the sixth graders I was supposed to be teaching. All I cared about was winning that battle with, with my principal. You know, when you, when you are in conflict with people and you don't like them, you're not even staying on focus of what you need to be doing. You lose your focus. And you're focused over here. Well, I just, I mean, and then, you know what? He took up a lot of my thinking time. He was controlling me because I was thinking all the time about how I'm going to win tomorrow. And I'm going to win this argument, and he's not going to win it, and, and all the other issues we kept fighting over the whole time. Well, one morning, the Lord spoke to me and said, you need to pray for Mr. Mr. Blank. Pray for him. I can't pray for him. I don't like him. I can't pray for him. And then the Lord reminded me of the scripture, and then I said, well, you know what? Okay, God, I'll start praying for his wife. <laughs> and so I started praying for his wife. Oh, Lord, you know what a difficult man this is to live with. How terrible he must be. And I went on and on. But do you know what? The more I prayed for his wife, the more God began to open my heart to him. And I finally began to pray for him. And do you know what? All those silly arguments that we were about seemed not very important. I began to have an insight and understanding to him just in those prayers. And you know what? I never said any more to him. And I, suddenly, I think he must have thought, it's not very exciting to fight with her anymore. She doesn't even want to fight. And you know what? I started focusing on those sixth graders that I needed to, needed to teach rather than the argument. I think what happens in our churches, we start fighting with each other and we get, we get off from the vision that God has for us, the mission he has for us. And so he keeps, then we all get distracted on this, but I'm sure this doesn't happen here, Pastor. So I don't need to worry about that. But this is just someplace else. This has taken place. And uh, people can get off that mission, and the next thing we know, Satan's won the battle. Well, I'm here to say, there's another part of that story. My principal and his wife, one Sunday, I looked up, and here he and his wife and three boys walked into church, and I hadn't even invited them. And they walked in. I couldn't believe it. I really started fervently praying for them then. And it wasn't many Sundays till I saw all five of them come to the front and accept Jesus as their personal Savior. Now, what would have happened if I had kept that fight? Who knows what, God, what, what would have happened? But when we follow what God calls us to do, we see a different story. Well... I was in the country of Cuba the first week of December, and um, as you know, Cuba has been, uh, been a very closed country all these years to the United States, of course, uh, and the Wesleyan Church has been in Cuba pre-revolutionary days, so we've had people there. In fact, my husband grew up part of his life in the country of Cuba. His parents were missionaries there. 
And so, the, but the revolution happened and the churches were shut down and Christians were persecuted. In fact, many of our Christians were, spent time in prison. Many of our Wesleyans spent time in prison and persecuted and so forth. But you know what? They never stopped. And God, they kept working. And we have all these churches there. And it's interesting. You can't have a church in Cuba. But people can have large garages and no car. And so we have these wonderful pastors with these large garages. And they're sacrificially living in a little bitty space that they can have church. But the national superintendent down there shared this with me. He said, you know, you've got to know this, Joanne, that for years we prayed that Castro would die. And I thought, well, I probably would have too, living under all that oppression and going to prison and all that. But he said, you know, one day God told us, you can't pray that way. You are to pray for your enemy, and you need to start praying for Castro. And so they did. And do you know what? They started getting focused on what it meant to have the church in Cuba rather than, than praying that Castro would die. They got focused back on what they were to do. So it's amazing what's taking place under that oppression. Well, the Minister of Religious Affairs in the country of Cuba. Now, in communist countries, a Minister of Religious Affairs is really the religious police. They, don't, they aren't promoting religion. But when we started from the U.S., started going back down there to see if we could go there, one of the leaders from Latin America went in to visit with her to get permission so we could get visas to go from the United States to go in to help and to work with our churches. So she asked all kinds of questions about the church. And uh, so uh, he answered all the questions, and she said, well, who is the leader of your church? And so she gave her my name. And she said, a woman is leading your church? How can that be? Because you see, in Marxism, they teach that the church oppresses women. And they tell, tell, you know, get out, get out, get out, because the church oppresses women. And so she couldn't put it together that a woman would lead the church. So she said, if this woman ever comes down, I want to meet her. So I went to meet her the first week in December, went in to visit with her. And it was a very interesting visit. The first few minutes was a lot about the propaganda and how she didn't like the U.S. and all that. And I was willing to listen to that. But then, suddenly, she changed the position in her chair. She folded her hands, dropped her head, and she said, now, I am not a Christian. And, of course, I didn't expect that. She's in a communist country and head, one of the head of states. I am not a Christian, but your church is what I think a church ought to be. And then she started in. She said, your church loves the ground. And we do. We have a big cooperative farm there and, and feed people out of this farm and so forth. And then she said, your church loves young people. Your church lifts up young people. Your church trains them. You give them the very best. Your church cares for old people. I've watched your people. They care for old people. And you've even brought in wheelchairs for disabled people. She said, you, you build houses for people. Whenever we have a disaster in our country, your church is the first one that comes and helps us with the disaster. And then she said, and you ordain. I thought that was very interesting. I was down there to ordain people, too. And then what she meant was she valued the fact that we educated people, that we didn't just say a preacher is here and then just zip out, but you're educated. We have standards that you must meet. 
And then she said, and because of what your church has done, we gave your church land three years ago, and I knew that, unprecedented, that the government of Cuba would give church, a church, land. And then she said, two years ago, we granted your church permission to build the first church to be built in Cuba in 52 years. And that church is being built as I speak. And I thought, what if they'd have continued to pray for Castro to die? They would have never had this incredible witness. A funny little thing. She said to me, now, two weeks ago, we granted the Catholics permission to build a cathedral. And I was just kind of glad we beat the Catholics on that one. <laughs> But I'm here to say that that cannot be done unless we're filled with the Spirit. John, the 14th chapter, there's a very interesting conversation that Jesus is having with Philip. Now, when I look at the disciple of Philip, the apostle of Philip, I always tend to think Philip kind of a mild-mannered uh, disciple. You will find Philip actually in the first chapter of John where Philip says to Nathaniel, Nathaniel, Jesus is the Messiah. You need to follow him. And Nathaniel uh, says, well, I'm not sure. Where is he from? You know, how many times do we do this? I'm not going to, well, I need to know. I need to know who this person's from. Where were they educated? I'm not sure. I'm going to pay attention to them. And so Philip, in his innocence, in a sense, says to Nathaniel, well, he's from Nazareth. And, and uh, Philip, in his little arrogant self, says, Nothing good can come from Nazareth. He'd already decided that. But Nathaniel soon found who Jesus was, and we, fought. we know that he became a disciple later. Well, we find Philip who was with Jesus all along. Philip was one of the disciples with Jesus when he fed the 5,000. Philip brought up the, the loaves and fish and gave them to Jesus, and I think just like every one of us in this room would have said, well, this isn't going to go very far. And that day Jesus said to him, today you're going to see something great. And, of course, he did. Philip was with Jesus when uh, blind eyes were opened, ears were opened. He saw all of this. But you know what? It sounds as if to me when I read the 14th chapter of John and I start looking at this conversation. And I just want to say, read Scripture and read the conversation. Read the drama. Read the stories. It isn't just verse, verse, verse. It is a story that's unfolding, the story of God and who God is. And so in this conversation, then you can tell Philip's had some doubts. Philip has been with Jesus all this time. But he started having doubts. I think that happens to us many times. We come along, we come along, and then we start having doubts. Oh, I'm not sure. So Philip says to Jesus, Jesus, are you really the Son of God? And Jesus responds back and says, well, Philip... I'm sure Jesus was stunned. I'm in the Father. The Father is in me. We are one. But I think Jesus looked at Philip and saw the sort of blank look on his face. And he said, but Philip, if you can't believe that, can't you at least believe on the evidence of the miracles that you have seen? 
Now, I think God does that many times with us, and we have to come back because the first answer was a cognitive answer, kind of a philosophical answer. But then Jesus got right down to where we live and said, okay, what about the miracles that you have seen? What about, and there was an old song many years ago that said, count your blessings. And sometimes we have to go back and say, okay, God, you did this, you did this, you did this, you did this. My faith is anchored. I'm going no place else. My faith is anchored. Here it is, here it is, here it is, here it is. Well, then, Jesus then responds immediately to Philip in John, the 14th chapter, verse 12. And if you'll put that up, this is an amazing verse. And I would think that this would make Philip just pass right out. Just take it. Let's read this together. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Now, now, okay, here's Philip. He doesn't even believe. I mean, he's having a hard time believing. And Jesus turns around and says to him, you're going to do what I've done. And then, the, then he just kicks it up a notch, Jesus does, and says, you're going to do greater things than I've done. Now, how can that be? The key is in that last line, that last clause, because I am going to the Father. Now, what did that mean? Philip had no idea what that meant. And I think many times in our lives, God is guiding us, and we have to follow almost blindly because we don't quite know what he's talking about. And I want to say at this point, too, when we come to Jesus, he gives us a new story. Not the old story that we thought we were. And we've been told all along, as, as Nathaniel said, we've been told all along, oh, you're from this family, or you're from there, or you went to school here, or you didn't get this, or you didn't get that, or you've had this happen to you. And then you just say, well, oh, guess that's that story. That's not God's story for you. And when you come to Jesus, he gives you a new story. The story he had in mind for you when you were born. And you start living out that story, not the old one. Well, here's Philip. He doesn't even know what this means, but they just keep going along. But suddenly, in a few weeks, he had, you see, Philip and the disciples, they had all their dreams in Jesus. Jesus was going to get rid of those Romans. I'm telling you, he was going to get rid of that old empire, and they were going to get to be the kings, and they were going to be able to rule. They were finally not going to be downtrodden anymore. They were finally going to have some power and authority. And Jesus gets arrested. Now, this is not the plan. This is not what we thought. This is not what we signed up for. And Jesus is arrested. And, of course, what's the first one that Peter doesn't even want to claim who Jesus is? You know what? And I go back. I wonder what was in Peter's mind. Remember when early on Jesus had said to Peter, Peter, on this rock I'm going to build my church. On you I'm going to build my church. Now, I think many times we have dreams. Of course we have dreams. And we have these dreams. And then suddenly these dreams that we had come shattering down. That's what happened with Phil. Jesus is arrested. All of these disciples, their dreams that they had of who they were going to be and what they were going to be and what all they intended to accomplish, shattered. I believe that this happens to us many times because those dreams are our dreams 
And God wants to kill those dreams and give us his dreams because then he gets the glory, not us. And this is what's happening right here. So Philip and all the disciples, Jesus is arrested. They scatter. They don't know what to do. The next thing they know, Jesus is on a cross. He's dead. Now talk about the dream being shattered. It's over. This thing is over, what we planned. All, everything we looked at is over. But it, don't we know the good news? On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. Here came the resurrection. But you know what? Here comes the new dream. Here comes the dream that, that's greater, that they couldn't even begin to imagine. And so, as we see the resurrection, and we, we look at all of that, and then those days that Jesus was here. I've been doing some studies on those days that Jesus was here, even more so, in historically and so forth. What was it like to be with the resurrected Lord? What were, those, what were those conversations like? What was that like? What was he trying to say? Well, then finally, right before Jesus ascends, he says to the disciples, Now, I want you to go to Jerusalem. And I want you to go to this upper room in Jerusalem. And I want you to be there until something happens. Now, by the they're ready to obey. 120 of them. And they went to this room, and they were there for 10 days. I cannot imagine what that room must have smelled like. 120 people with no showers. That's right. Lord is right. But they were there. And I don't think they walked in that room, and they all loved each other. They had interpersonal relationship problems they had to work out. And they had to work things out with each other. But they began to work things out. They didn't just go up there and play crazy eights and all that. They went up there and they began to work things out. And they were serious about what it was. What did Jesus really want them to do there? And suddenly, on that day, the mighty wind of the Spirit came in. We know that as the breath of God. The scriptures tell us that fire sat on their heads. And they were cleansed. They were purified. And they had one goal, and that was to please Jesus. That was to please God. Now, they and they were filled with love for each other. And they, but you know what? The interesting thing is they were filled for, with love not just for each other, but they had the courage then, and the, they wanted to do this and went out from behind those closed doors and went out to the street to 4 million people. Historians tell us that there were 4 million people on the streets of Jerusalem at that time. And they were there to, to uh, celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. And the Feast of Pentecost was to celebrate the law that had been given when, when Moses got the law. So thousands of years, Jews had been going to Jerusalem to celebrate the giving of the law. But this was a different day. 600 years earlier, tucked in Jeremiah, the 31st chapter, there's a verse that says, God said, there will be a day when I will write my law on their hearts. This is that day. This is that day. And Peter went out and began to preach. Now, these are people he was prejudiced against. These were people he didn't like. These were people who looked down on him from who, where he was, from who he was. 
And they tell us that there was every ethnic group and language in that known part of the world at that time on those streets. Talk about an ethnically diverse church. That was the beginning of how God had it in mind for an ethnically diverse church. And he began to preach. And that first day, 3,000 came. The next day, 5,000. And it goes on and on until finally there's a passage in Acts that says, there finally were so many they couldn't count. Pastor, wouldn't you love that? If finally, Christian uh, Restoration Fellowship, Christian, y'all get it right pretty soon, that it becomes so great and so wonderful that you finally tell Pastor Wes, Wes, I don't know what's happening. It, we've got so many, we can't even count them anymore. I believe that God's not finished with doing that. Now, let's talk a minute about what happened on that day. The Holy Spirit is also known as the breath of God. We can go back to creation, and we find that the breath of God, God breathed on the chaos of the universe, and creation happened. And God spoke, and God said, this is good. And then we find other speakings of God, but then we find God breathing on those old dry bones in Ezekiel. And, and, and these were dry bones, the valley of the dry bones. It was awful. And God breathed on those bones. And those bones began to connect to each other. And God spoke, and God said, this is life. And then we find Jesus when he's baptized, and he's coming up out of the water. And God thunders out of heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then God speaks through Jesus the whole time. So we have all these teachings in the Gospels. And there's a passage that said, and I, wouldn't you love it? It said, he taught so much that not all, the books in the whole world could not hold all that he taught. Wouldn't you love to know what everything that he said? But, I mean, he's given us enough. That's plenty. We're trying to live that one. But you know what happened on this day? On this day, now... For 2,000 years, God no longer thunders out of heaven. He has chosen to speak through us. He has chosen to speak through us. The Holy Spirit in us. If I were God, I would have not done it that way. Because I wouldn't have trusted us. But he has trusted you. He's trusted me to speak. It's an incredible opportunity and an awesome responsibility that we have sitting here. And this, that day, Pentecost, was the beginning of the church. And God himself has chosen to move through the world in his church. He didn't choose General Motors or IBM or Google. He chose the church. And he's been doing this 2,000 years, my friends. And he's been doing it through you and through me. And he wants to continue to do it. And he has great things that he continues to want to do through us. But he's chosen to do this. Now, let's take a look at Philip a minute. All right, let's pick up Philip. What happened to Philip after Pentecost? Did he see greater things? Well, let's follow Philip. In the 8th chapter of Acts, you will find Philip who went to the darkest city in Samaria. 
Now, first of all, Philip, a Jew, would never go to Samaria. Incredible prejudice. Incredible racism happen, happening there. And what did he do? He went not just to a nice city, but the darkest city filled with demons and all kinds of things. He goes to that city and takes the gospel. And the revival hits that city. And people come to Jesus. Then a few more verses we find that he meets the Ethiopian eunuch. And he gives the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. And right there they baptizes him. And the gospel goes to Africa from Philip. Greater things? Never dreamed. Greater things. Historians tell us that Philip also took the gospel to what we would know today as Iran. Let's take a look at some of those other disciples. Thomas, who was such a doubter. You know, I'm sure some of us in here identify with Thomas. But look what Thomas did. Thomas took the gospel to the country of India. The south of India today is Christian and is from what Thomas took. And we have churches throughout the whole uh, subcontinent of India called the Church of Martoma. I've worshipped in some of those churches. It's the Church of Thomas. Greater things. Scriptures tell us that Mark took the gospel to Egypt. And the, and the Coptic church that we know in Egypt today, Mark was the founder. He took the Christianity and the gospel of, of Jesus to Egypt. And we can go on and on and on, on the changes that took place. And the people that were at Pentecost, people that were there on the street, who went back to their cities and planted churches. They didn't call it that then, but that's what, we're saying. That's what we would say. They went to Junia, and that group went back to Rome and planted the church in Rome. You see, greater things. Greater things. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Now, one of the next verse that we find in this passage is God never says, well, this is what I want you to do without telling us how to do it. So if you'll put up those next two verses for me, please. Uh, 13 and 14. There we go. There's 13. Read it out loud with me. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may bring glory in the Son. You may ask anything, ask for anything in my name, and I will do it. Now, the key word in both of those passages is ask. In, this in the NIV, in the, this particular discourse of Jesus, we find the word ask eight times in there. Jesus wants us to ask. Now, you say, well, you know, I ask and it doesn't, doesn't happen. You know, one of the things that I think we struggle with in North America is that most of the prayers we pray, we can probably answer. I'm telling you the truth. I've prayed prayers and sort of like, well, if God doesn't come through, I can probably figure it out. But I'm here to say that when we start praying serious prayers... And nothing, we can't answer it. There is not a thing we can do to answer it. And this space right here is if the only that God can answer it. When we start praying those prayers, that's when we see miracles. That's when we see miracles. And God's not finished doing miracles in this day. He is doing in the miracle business, and he wants to keep doing it. So the word ask. I think when we talk about prayer... Prayer is a relationship. Prayer is our relationship with God. 
I think many times we've made it a, a ritual. Well, read my verses and said my prayer. I will check it off, and I'm finished today. But he wants this continual relationship with us. And it's about asking. So sometimes it's, it's like our families. We happen to have four children. And when our first baby was born, I must say I was, I was ridiculous. I would even hold a mirror over her mouth to make sure she was breathing at night. You know, I was pretty paranoid. And, uh, uh, but then we got a little better. And so, you know, when she started, when she would cry, well, does she, does she need her diapers changed? Does she need to be rocked? Does she need to be fed? And so I started learning, though, that she, so she was asking. That's asking. And then I started learning what those, those little different kinds of cries meant. Well, oh, she needs to be fed. Okay. She needs to be held. She needs her diapers changed. I'll let her cry. You know, you know that one, too. Yeah. And uh, so, I, and then as my daughter began to grow older, and she would, you know, the next thing is, mm, mm. Oh, you want this? You want this? You want this? You can even start understanding those little grunts. Oh, you know, all of that stuff. And so that's asking and that's understanding. And then as they begin to talk and so forth, and, and my four children, in fact, this last weekend, I talked to every, uh, all four of them. And you know what? We ask questions, and they ask, and I ask. I mean, our conversations are back and forth. And we're knowing each other more and more and more after even all these years. That's how the relationship God wants with us. Ask. He'll teach you. Doesn't mean he's not Santa Claus. I want to make this clear. He's not giving you everything you want. You are learning. You ask and be open to be taught and learn and ask and learn. And then you won't be afraid to ask. You just ask and he teaches you. So he wants to receive glory for everything that we ask and what he wants to do. So in my life, and many of you too, I've had many a request, many a ask. But I just want to share one with you. In 1996, I started this organization connected with the Wesleyan Church called World Hope International. It's an international non-governmental organization that works in development around the world. And so our, the Wesleyan Church was starting work in the country of Cambodia at that time. And if you know, you read about Cambodia, you know about the killing fields and all violence, violence, violence that took place in that country uh, during their revolution. And literally, uh, they would hold people by the head and chop their heads off and drop their bodies in these deep holes. And it's what's referred to as the killing fields throughout the whole uh, country. And I've been there and been out to the killing fields. Even yet, from the, er from the late 80s and early 90s, they're still clothes coming up out of the ground of those victims that are in those those killing fields so the country was a violent really satan satan had his someone said if you don't believe satan is alive and well go to cambodia and you'll see what he's done and so that's what it is but you know what that's where god calls us that's where god calls his people god's light is the brightest in the darkest places and so we started churches there. And so I went to see how we could work together. And, and one of the things the government said is, you, we're not going to let any church in here until you're going to do something for the people. Well, that's exactly what it should be. That's what the church should be doing. It's all together. We work in a holistic gospel and, and work in those ways. And so I, uh, just as I was getting ready to leave, I had two other women with me on that trip. And I was getting ready to leave. And our missionary that was there said, Joanne, you've got to go out to see this. We don't know what to call it. Now, this is 1996. A few years ago, there were 3,000 children. But today, they tell us there are 15,000 children out here. 
And so we went out. And we started walking down that dusty road. And there were wooden structures on each side of the road. And on the porches were white plastic chairs with children sitting in these chairs for sale. And I couldn't believe it. And we just kept walking, 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 walking. I took out my camera, took a, little, uh, took a, a couple of shots, and the, a pimp came out and tried to get the camera, and I grabbed it and put it back in, in my bag, and we moved on. Finally, we, we were overwhelmed. This face of evil, and so blatant. These children just sitting there for sale. So we got to a corner, and finally all of us said, we can't take this anymore. We've got to pray. You know, you, finally in this face of evil, we've got to pray. So the four of us joined hands, three old ladies and a tired old missionary. That is a weak group. We had no resources. I had just started this organization, didn't have money. It was me, a computer, a desk, and a parsonage in Warrington, Missouri, right straight out of St. Louis. Nothing. And who are we to pray in the midst of this evil? But you know what? God says to ask. He didn't say, ask when the problems are little. He didn't say, ask when it's not evil. He just says, ask. That he receives glory. So the four of us prayed there. Lord, here we are. We don't know what this is about. We don't even understand this, but we know it's evil. And these children should not be for sale. And we know that, and so, Lord, here we are. Do whatever you want to do with us. The next day, we met a family. They were getting ready to, uh, we met a family that was in, needed help, and so we gave them money to start a business. So we thought maybe helping them start this business, they would not sell their children. I thought that's, maybe that's, that's what, oh, maybe that God answered that prayer. Maybe that was all. I had no idea what all God had in mind. Well, I came back to the States, and I got busy in other things, didn't, didn't write anything about it. And about a year later, I uh, uh, wrote something. And um, I didn't hear anything from anybody, and, I, and I, I thought, good night. Aren't any people in America, aren't they even troubled by this? But didn't hear anything, and then finally, the, about a year later, I got a call from a woman in Alabama I had never met. And she said, that paper that you wrote, that article fell on my hand, and I can't get it out of my system. If I sent you some money, could you do something about this? Well, by this time, we had moved to Washington, D.C., and uh, had office, and I had a little bit more staff. And so I said, well, if you want to send me money, we'll, I'll send somebody to Cambodia, and we'll see what we can do. So... I talked to the person who was doing this kind of thing, and I said, go to Cambodia, but join somebody else that's already doing it. Too many times, we all want to be heroes, and we need to work together. And so he did. And so he went there, and he found some folks that were doing, some women that were running a shelter of, for, to help young women and children in this, caught in this horrible sex trade and, uh, and who had been sold, literally sold, uh, and so he, he gave them funds, and we were able to help them build something. Well, I thought, well, that's great. Wow, praise God. That little prayer out there. 
Well, I had no idea at that time that President George Bush was going to start talking about this. I had no idea that the State Department was going to start talking about this. I had no idea they were going to put money in this. And do you know who were the first people they called on for help? The faith group, faith-based groups, because this is about transformation. It's not just about fixing something. It's about transformation. And so God opened door after door after door after door. Not only I could spend all evening telling you miracle after miracle after miracle that God did. And not only in the country of Cambodia, but through other parts of the world and all kinds of things and still going on and still working. And I'm here to tell you that there have been tens of thousands of children that have been prevented from being sold because we got the prevention side. And then thousands that have been rescued. And today there are many of those children that have been rescued from those brothels and have been rescued from this and are now leading worship. I was in one church where they were, here were some of these girls that had been now leading worship, can you believe? Guess what? God gave them a new story. And they didn't have to go in that old story that they had. And I, some have been pastors and some, all kinds of things, teachers. Amazing things of thousands that have been rescued. I thought about that prayer. That little prayer of this weak, three old ladies, a tired old missionary. It, God didn't say in that, ask if you happen to have a million dollars in the bank. He didn't say, ask if you happen to have a high, important, powerful position. He says, ask so that I receive the glory. And he receives the glory. So... I haven't, I was, I've been in and out of Cambodia a lot. I could tell you a lot of stories, but I was there about four years ago, and someone came to me and said, Joanne, have you been out to that street, named the name of the street? I said, you know what? All these times I've been in and out, I haven't been back out there. Well, you've got to go because you're not going to believe it. And I didn't. I, went, I couldn't believe it. I went out there. Those wooden structures are gone. No more children sitting on the porches. Children were playing in the street like normal children, and then the most powerful thing of all, the most vile brothel in that area that had been when I was there is now a church. And this Cambodian pastor and his family moved in, and I, I, uh, I sat with them there in that church, and I said, I can't believe this. And he said, you know, God just told us to move in. And he and his wife and children moved in. And it reminded me of John uh, 1.14 where it says, The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. <laughs> Eugene Peterson translates it that way. And moved into the neighborhood. And I thought that's exactly what the, that Cambodian pastor and his family did. They moved into the neighborhood. And the evil powers could not overcome the power of God. And so there we were, I was there sitting, surrounded by these young people that are now in the church, have found Jesus, who could have been sold many, uh, sold several years ago, but now what are they talking about? Being pastors, missionaries, teachers, doctors, lawyers, oh, they have a hope, they have something else. That's, my friends, when we ask, God wants to give glory, and those are greater things, greater things that he wants to do. And so tonight, I want you to ask greater things. And that's not for 40 years from now. It's now. 
And God's calling us now. He's calling us now to reconcile in so many ways. Reconcile the races. Reconcile uh, economically. Reconcile within our churches. Reconcile with each other. This is our God's call today. And do you know what? He has created you and me to be leaders at this time in history. Don't hide in the closet and say, oh, I don't want to deal with all that stuff that's going out. No, he's created you to be a leader where you are. Where you work, when you walk in your place, the business, you've taken the Holy Spirit in. It's a different place. When you walk in the grocery store, it's a different place because you've taken the Holy Spirit into that place. When you walk in to teach in your classroom, whatever your profession, whatever you do, it's different because you're taking the Holy Spirit in there. And God has asked, told us, he has given us, told us right there, ask. So tonight, let's bow our heads. Close our eyes. Lord Jesus, tonight, here we are. This great group of people that love you. And so we have several things tonight, Lord. First, we want to ask personally whatever those may be, family-wise, whatever that may be, career-wise, ministry-wise, and then, Lord, tonight, corporately, Restoration Christian Fellowship, we ask. What do you want to do through us to break our imagination of greater things? And you receive glory because it's not anything that we can do on our own, but it's what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. We hope that you can find a way to impact the community around you through this church or a local church around you. We also encourage you to find a church to get connected to, whether that's here at RCF or somewhere close to you. If you want to find out more about RCF, visit rcfministries.org or watch us live on Sundays at 9.30 a.m on the RCF Network. Thanks for listening.